Hello, and welcome to Furloughed, defining moments worth talking about. I'm your host, Leonard Cochran, and of course, we have Steve Otterstrom with us today. Steve, how are you doing today? Well, I, I mean, I, I feel like the real question today is, how are you feeling today, Leonard? Yeah. <laughs> I know a little bit about your situation. Yes. <laughs> and so, yeah, how are you and how's your family? And and, and uh, maybe, maybe you can share what you'd like to share with with our listening audience about about your current situation current situation <laughs> absolutely yeah thank you steve yeah so for our listening audience here uh this is the day and age we live in it is 2021 but yet we know covid lives on so uh we did get confirmation uh, last week, by the time you're hearing this, uh, we did get confirmation that we have COVID in our household. And so you may recall from previous podcasts, we've got, uh, at this point, uh, four generations living in our home. Three generations? Where are we at now? Anyhow, we've got seven people instead of eight. We lost a generation. She didn't pass on. She just moved off. But nonetheless, <laughs> we have COVID in our household. And uh, so we, uh, I've, I've been dealing with what felt like a sinus infection for about a week and then my wife was affected and some others in the household and so finally uh, obviously we we range from a, a, a grandchild that's in school and so of course for sure had to have him tested rather than to drag anything back to school after the new year started and sure enough a positive test came back and so at this point we know at least five of us out of seven are being <laughs> affected by the virus in some way, shape, or fashion, assuming that mine is something possibly more than just a sinus infection based on the results. So the good news is, though, is um, despite it being sort of a roller coaster of feeling normal and then diving into this, I feel weak, maybe achy, extremely fatigued. And sometimes uh, I've pretty well avoided fever, but a few folks have had up and down fevers uh, where, you know, pop and sweat and bust in one moment and the next time you're just freezing and can't get warm. And so it's been a bit of a roller coaster ride, but I think, I think we're on the tail end of it. And uh, as I say, mine's felt like a sinus infection for about the last five days. I keep saying, this is probably the last day I'm going to feel this way. <laughs> and it sort of <laughs> hangs on. Uh, but I, I don't think any of us are in danger of any kind of long-term health effects or, or so be it, uh, even so far as death. Uh, un unfortunately, it, it is closer to home now with that as well. Um, not involving a family member, but uh, we, uh, we did have a, a close friend of ours whose uh, sister passed away with COVID this past week. Mm. And so that's probably the closest person to me to be directly affected and again i i know her i don't know her sister uh but just uh again that's the closest it's been for me wow uh, so yeah experiencing all this now after what's it been 10 months 11 months of covid in the united states it's it's kind of a strange sensation um and then of course the whole covid thing gives you a little bit of a cloudy mind along the way <laughs> just like any kind of a flu so yeah. uh but I'm feeling much better today, Steve. And uh, I, again, hoping, trusting that our household is on the edge of recovery as well. Uh, we're in lockdown for the remainder of this week. And uh, so hopefully life will be back to, quote unquote, whatever our normal is <laughs> following, <laughs> following this week uh, that this airs. 
well, you know, it, it is an interesting, you know, full circle, you know, to think that it's, it's the, the disease that you're dealing with right now is the disease that, you know, that, that started like this whole thing, you know, um, that started our original furlough that gave us the time to begin this podcast, you know, that led eventually to my losing my job and you being furloughed for another three months and, you know, Mm -hmm. and then finally coming back and, and, um, you know, and then even just looking at where we're at as a country, you know, um, I, I saw something that said now that one in a thousand Americans, um, this year have died of COVID. Um, yeah, 950 is the number I read. 1950 yeah. at this point. Yeah. yeah. Which is just kind of incredible when you actually look at a stat from that perspective, uh, because a thousand people is not a whole lot, you know? No, <laughs> no. If I, if I was going to the mall and there's a thousand people in there and they said, someone's in this mall is going to die. I'll tell you, I'd be out of there quick. <laughs> Leave the mall. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. Uh, there's no way to be like, well, you know, that's actually only one, you know, <laughs> one tenth of a percent. They're like, I hey, know that's, uh, I'm, I'm out of here. Yeah. Um, it's, it's it's better odds than going to tunica let's just say that but anyhow <laughs> that's my opinion obviously <laughs> yeah well and, and you know i think there is certainly this but it's also we, we we see on the news the hospitals we see those full we see those we don't necessarily see people who are just kind of feeling yucky in their own homes yes. as well and so um i i certainly think it's it's something we need to take seriously but it's also nice to sometimes hear about people who didn't have so bad a reaction to it so that um you don't live in a constant fear you know as as it as as we all end up having to live our lives whether or not whether or not that's the right thing we all do have to live our lives um you know it's nice to have a few stories of it not being life or death or on the brink of death but it's interesting you talk about it hitting closer to home i i most of throughout the entire um, pandemic, I've been at home and I've been dealing with people, you know, online mostly, but I haven't really had a community. And now, now I work uh, doing the tech for a church and I hear so many different stories now. And I'm like, oh, this really did affect yes. a lot of people um, and, and people in that, um, in that church community talking about family members who are, um, who, who were gravely ill um, and, and then others who didn't get it quite so bad. I mean, the one thing I would worry about and I'm worried about for you, how's your taste sense? I oh yeah. Yeah. I, I, just like any sinus infection, I think it's affected some, but I, mm. I have not lost my sense of smell or sense of taste. Now, a couple people in the house did lose their mm. sense of smell. And, uh, so, you know, the Lysol being sprayed can be a little irritating for those of us <laughs> that have not lost it. Uh, but uh, yeah, in, in a, one of them happened to be my grandchild, eight-year-old. And so oh, he wow. was just fascinated for the fact that he could not smell anything. And so we <laughs> got, got to hear about that for several hours over dinner one night. And, uh, so, but uh, yeah, and, and that gives different perspective to it as well, right? Uh, you mm-hmm. know, to suddenly see it through the lens of a child. And, you know, just for me thinking about it, you know, this kid is eight (laughs) and how big this is playing into his life as a third grader, uh, second grader, uh, rather a second grader, you know, the, he has very little school experience, very little exposure outside the home compared to you or I, and, uh, to be going through an experience like this. So it kind of does put things in a little different lens when you, 
uh, kind of view it from a child's eyes as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then, of course, I, I want to make sure that we also just mention at least, even though it's not the topic of our, our podcast today, but we have plenty of um, listeners who actually listen, maybe even more that listen outside the United States yes. than within. And, um, you know, national news and international news has been the occurrences at the Capitol um, on the 6th while the electoral votes were being counted. Um, the official count. They've already been counted. We know how many are there, uh, but the Constitution requires an official oversight of those, of counting those votes. Um, and during that time, uh, a riot broke out and the uh, Capitol was overrun. Um, and unfortunately, I think that there were four or either five people died. One woman was shot by police. Yeah, I'm, hearing, I'm hearing five at this point because there was yeah. an officer that died of... Uh... Injuries of injuries sustained, yeah, and in 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 basically the fight um, yeah. that that occurred. That uh, my understanding is he was pulled out away from the other officers and and was 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 badly injured, and then that you know succumbed to those injuries. And then the other three, I'm not sure I understand exactly what they were, uh, other than they said they were medical um, things. So yeah. I don't know if it was. I did read on one started a heart attack or yeah you yeah, tell me well yeah I didn't hear the specifics but I did hear it was a heart attack they they administered CPR and then uh, to no avail but yeah mm -hmm. what what provoked it and so on who knows uh, needless yeah. to say a few temperatures were uh, flying high so it could be a result of just being in the crowd or it could have just been you know poor heart condition to begin with and just happened to be and then being exposed that, to know. tear gas or something who knows you yeah. know it's it's difficult to say i mean it, we see that actually often in circumstances where someone has a weak heart and then they get you know hit with a taser or something yeah and um you know well, generally it's not considered but yeah exactly exactly um yeah. so of course i think for me and and maybe maybe leonard i'd be curious to hear your your thoughts on this i i, I found it to be shocking i found it to be upsetting mm -hmm. um i'm not you know, it, 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 I think it is an attack on democracy uh, from the perspective that uh, there was an attempt by force to stop government from doing its job yes. in, in recognizing the votes that have been cast and that were legally cast. I know that there are conspiracy yeah. theories out there, but I've spent quite a bit of time because it's what I do, <laughs> trying, trying, to, um, trying to track some of these things down and, and see if there's any any validity to anything and of course you know um i i wasn't there but the evidence is overwhelmingly against there being any sort of widespread voter fraud but the evidence is also overwhelmingly there that there are people who don't seem to be concerned with the truth on that in that area and yeah. um and it's unfortunate because it's it's led to you know when I when I saw those rioters come in I I thought of people that I know um, that have you know just taken that hook line and sinker they they believe it yeah. <laughs> and and they're not bad people um, they're the kind of people that if you were driving down the road and you your tire you know blew out they're the ones that are going to stop <laughs> yeah and help you change your tire they're the ones that have you know, oftentimes very, in many ways, high values, but also, unfortunately, a susceptibility to believe that the government is against them. 
Well, I, I think there's a number of things come into play. Um, number one, politics has been ugly for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've we've avoided that immensely in our program here, <laughs> but yeah. it has been ugly for a while. And I, it, regardless of which side a person's on, and you and I had a, a personal conversation. I mean, and, and talked about some specifics of it, uh, some photo images that the press, depending on which side the media is in favor of, uh, makes makes it more agitating for one person than another, and so on. So I, I think all of that has helped uh, to contribute. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think you're right as far as the the gathering itself. Some of those folks were just there as a matter of support, I would assume. Mm-hmm. But anytime you have a large gathering, you always stand the risk of fringes. And we saw that during the summer riots, and we saw that mm-hmm. during this here. And I'm not trying to measure which is right and which is wrong. Uh, to me, <laughs> plain and simply, they were all wrong. I'll say that. Yeah. I, I do understand emotions, where the emotions were uh, at, at times. But let's face it, in the end, we're all adults and should be responsible. But now you throw yourself into a group of several thousand people and 10, 15, 20, 100 of them decide to break down a door and do something stupid. It's easy to get swept into the emotion of the moment and do something you might not otherwise do. And that is any of the riots, the summer mm-hmm. or this one. Um, what just utterly amazes me with this one, and I at least think, fortunately, I've seen several articles on it, is how ill-prepared anyone was for this. Mm-hmm. Um, we knew there were going to be people there protesting, whether it was in support or just to actually try and change a vote. I'm not going to try and discern everybody's motives because uh, I actually know <laughs> I have Facebook friends that went. Um, mm-hmm. You know, but nonetheless, it turned ugly, and I, I it, it was not really a surprise somebody would try and do something stupid when you get that many bodies together. So well, I, why? Why were they ever allowed in the building, period? You know, the people stand there with guns, can stop entry in the building if they wanted. And I knew they were outnumbered. Uh, but I read some stats as to the police department. The Capitol Police had, uh, and forgive me, I'm not great with numbers. I want to say they have 2,400 police officers. That's what, that's what my recollection is. 2,300 is what came to mind to me. Okay. Uh, and then the, for whatever reason, they decided to compare it to Milwaukee, of all things. Uh, so Milwaukee has 840 police officers. Mm-hmm. Milwaukee has 60,000 residents that it serves and protects in a 16-mile radius. And the 2,300 police officers in Capitol have 15, 16 acres that they protect. And so yeah. it just... Uh, to me, somebody, regardless of opinion, it looks to me like somebody could have easily taken some better precautionary steps to not allow this to happen. And yeah, I, that's well, where I'll stop. Well, <laughs> two things that just quickly come to mind, and I'll stop too, because this is not the point of our podcast. Yeah, but yeah, so um, we're probably stirring everybody up right now. Right exactly, now. and it's not 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 our point. So please <laughs> keep listening. But. Um, Two things that come to mind is that this our our culture, our um, our perspective in the United States has been a peaceful transition of power for so long, yes. and this goes back to you know George Washington, and having this this perspective that w- you can disagree on everything, but you never ever mess with that peaceful transition of power. We've had protests at the Capitol. We've had thousands of people at the Capitol. 
but we've all seen the Capitol as, and that, that kind of that seat of democracy as being yeah. something sacred that you don't mess with that. And over the last few months, it's been messed with, you know, and the heads of people have been messed with by individuals who really have a, a loose relationship with what the truth is, because it doesn't fit what the narrative of what they want there to be. I mean, one of the most upsetting things I've heard is, well, he couldn't have won by that many votes because that's more votes than Obama got. There, there's no logic in a statement like that. Um, it. it, it you you wouldn't say, well, your bank account can't be that much because that's more than your neighbor. You know, it, it, it would have to, you'd have to get into the math to show that it's wrong, not in a, an emotion or a feeling. And so many of those things have been able to be put out there that it actually has eroded that sense of a peaceful transition of power is more important than who takes that position. And, well, yeah, you know, it, yeah, and to me, even more serious, I mean, obviously, I want a peaceful transition of power, but even more serious than that is the fact that the whole democratic process, and not Democrat versus Republican, we are a yeah. democracy, so it's a democratic <laughs> process for those folks that might want to brush up on some things. Um, but the fact that we have to we've begun to totally question and devalue the democracy that we have mm -hmm. uh, by responding the way we have. You know, the, we've, we've questioned... You know, I recognize the popular vote versus the uh, electoral college has has played in favor of Republicans twice in the last several years. And in fact, it was an article I read in the last 30 years. Yeah, uh, there was only one Republican voted in with popular vote uh, and the rest were won by electoral college. Well, there's discussions on both sides of the aisle at this point and overthrowing what's been done for 200 plus years with that as well. Mm -hmm. And so just because things aren't turning out the way we want, we want to change the rules. And that's where I think we're in grave danger. Now, the fortunate thing is the Constitution is designed in such a way to make it difficult to make those changes. Yeah. Um, it has to truly be deliberated on and agreed to by, yeah, by, by so many two -thirds people. Two-thirds of Congress, two-thirds of the states, et cetera, that type exactly. of thing. And so, uh, you know, that's why regardless of political opinion, we, we need to just kind of set back, trust the process and continue to vote in the way for people that believe the way that we believe or for the causes that we believe in and so on. Um, but recognize, you know, our nation wasn't meant to turn on a dime. Our forefathers had enough uh, foresight, foresight to see <laughs> what had been done previously in other nations. And, you know, this... Uh, a military coup is not the way we want to handle it. And I recognize this wasn't military, but no, what's, you know, it's just pitchforks and, and whatnot at the Capitol building is not going to give the results anybody wants. And I don't care what the, what happens after the pitchforks, it's just not going to be pretty. Well, and, and so, and that know, is the happy ending back and trust the process is that it didn't work. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it didn't work. Yeah. Um, uh, and the vote was uh, certified later that night. Yes. Um, you know, the tragedy is the, the loss of human life that, that yes. went into trying to do something very foolhardy. But the, um, the, the process continued. We will have a peaceful transition of power on the 20th and, um, <laughs> and, and we'll move forward. Um, yeah. and, and hopefully we, we learn from that. But with that, 
I'd like to transition because I don't want to get any more into yeah, this. Because we turn here, a hard turn, hard turn. We're going to be making a, a major switch here, so people buckle your seatbelts um, as we switch away from current events and COVID. And um, let's jump into something that um, is actually much nearer and dearer to me. Um, and and we have a special guest on today. And I want to kind of just give a little bit of story how we came to this special guest. Um, we originally, Leonard and I were thinking of actually having my father on because he's just barely finished writing a book about um, his life and uh, what happened uh, to him when he was a kid. His, his He grew up in a, a coal mining town. And um, uh, it's kind of a really, if you've watched the movie October Skies, uh, type of, of story <laughs> where his, his father was trying to get out of the coal mines. Uh, and they had a big dream. They opened a movie theater in the middle of nowhere um, and had success and also had some uh, failures and tragedy that went with it. But uh, just so happened that, that we could not get my father today. <laughs> and so Leonard and I were sitting there scratching our heads thinking they're not surely not going to want to hear from just us. And it dawned on me that um, in my own family, again, um, I've got someone that has a remarkable story to tell. And uh to tell that story, I want to start out just by giving a little bit of my story again. Many of you who have who have listened to uh, this podcast from the very beginning, you know uh, that I uh, have dyslexia, um, and um, it's something that really does affect my life and really doesn't affect my life. And for the most part, I've always tried to keep that something that I didn't talk about uh, because when people hear that you might have a disability. Well, they, they hear the word for what it is, disability, unable, <laughs> and it will affect uh, your ability to get employment. Um, it doesn't matter if there's a law that says people aren't allowed to do that. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it will affect your employment. It will affect your relationships. It will affect people who will, um, you know, uh, see you as someone who is their equal. Um, and so I've always kept that um, a secret to the degree that I could. I mean, when I was a kid and had to go through, you know, special education, and that's another thing. I mean, even just telling people that you were in special education, they're, they're like, well, whoa, what happened to you? Did you have a super treatment drug that fixed you when you got, you know, became an adult? Um, but anyways, for that reason, as an adult, I, I did not like to um, talk about it. I didn't like to bring it up. And if you knew about it, it was only because I trusted you to a very high degree. Um, now, a few years ago, I was sitting down with my son and we were putting together a job application for him. And on that, it had you know, a place where you could disclose whether you had a disability or you could uh, decline to share that information. And I've always put decline to share that information. I do that on all my applications or have done that on all my applications. Um, and his response was, well, I, I do have autism and it is who I am. And so if that is a problem for them, I don't really want to deal with them. And it was interesting because it, it dawned on me at that point that for those of us that have disabilities that can be hid, we have a tremendous um, advantage over other people who have disabilities that can't be hid because we can hide that disability and we can go about as if, you know, it doesn't exist or we can use our coping mechanisms that people don't necessarily see. And um, it allows people who have 
disabilities who can't be hid to continue to be discriminated against. And so it was really a moment of, of courage when he said that. And it, and it really, to me, um, was kind of an opening of the door to say, you know, this isn't something I'm going to hide. This is something I'm going to tell people so that when they know that someone has dyslexia, they don't go, oh, I bet they wouldn't be good in a position that has a lot of writing. I've heard that before. Well, if I, if I knew that, I would make sure they weren't in a position that did a lot of writing. Well, some of your best writers may have dyslexia. Make sure they have the adaptive technology that makes it so uh, they can get their spelling right. <laughs> That's all you need to do. And it's built into so many things. Um, and it's the same with autism. It's extremely misunderstood. Um, and oftentimes someone has had one experience with one person and they think that then they understand what autism is. So with that, I want to go ahead and introduce um, my son to you, Jacob, who is on the line with us. And um, let's, let's, let's go ahead and start this out by why don't you actually just tell them a little bit about who you are. Who is Jacob? Um, what kind of things do you enjoy? Uh, what kind of things do you not enjoy? Um, go ahead, Jacob. Tell us a little bit about who you are. So I'm Jacob. Um, I'm uh, 19, 20 next month. Uh, I'm a bit of a geek. Um, <laughs> I I was going to say, yes, you are. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm not sure anyone knows Very much so. as much about movies or anime or fantasy as you. Well, there are, but <laughs> quite a few. But um, yeah, um, I'm, I'm definitely a huge fan of that kind of thing. Um, and you graduated last year. Is that right, Jacob? So last year yeah you're, you're out of school now yep yep i am yeah i did graduate last year and what are you doing with your life right now uh currently i'm boxing bath bombs <laughs> yeah so if, in fact if, if any of you uh, remember our previous episode we had uh david danzig on and uh uh he actually is is working in his factory making bath bombs so yep um, I think that's yep. just two, two or three episodes ago. Yeah. Excellent. You don't have to go back too far. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and Jacob, I know this is, this is a little, a uh, little bit awkward sometimes to have to talk about yourself, uh, but you are kind of the star yeah. of the show today. <laughs> um, and, 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 you know, we, we, we specifically, and I tell you my story about, you know, you uh, being willing to, to just be open about, um, having autism and and so yeah. my question to you and, and you're welcome to be like well it doesn't mean anything but what does that mean to you when you hear someone say someone has autism or you have autism like I, we, we probably have people on this call that might be saying what is autism i thought i thought that was when That's you were true. in a wheelchair or you can't talk or um well and to me you have autism just means you're a person because it's so ill-defined <laughs> on what it can and can't be like it's such a wide scale yeah let, let's talk to that just a little bit to get us started if you would jacob so um kind of what is that scale of autism but well, first of all maybe just sort of a general definition to your dad's point to steve's point uh what what would be defined as autism if you can and then talk about that scale a little bit if you would to how it can vary so much from one individual to the next. Well, 
I don't, I guess I'm not really an expert. Um, so I, I, I'd consider myself at the more or less, um, less affected by it. Like it definitely has affected me, but more, um, like, so I know there's heavier types of autism. There's, um, the more non-lingual kind where they have trouble speaking. Um, I don't know a whole lot about that. Um, I don't know anything about the science that goes into this, but um, there's those who are essentially dyslexic, but also not, not technically dyslexic. I think that's more where I'm at. Like I just have trouble facing, um, like I can't do tons of math all at once. Like, I can't look at a huge sheet. I have to break it down into way smaller parts, slowly add those together, and then make it into one big thing. Or like reading a huge page or like a full book can be very hard for me. Mm. I'm I'm generally a bit more of a visual learner and things. And some people also have trouble with like taking things more literally. I, so, or so I've been told, I, like I said, I am not an expert. And if I've learned anything, it's that media gets things wrong when it comes to disabilities. <laughs> In many ways, I believe. Too, oh, yes. Matter. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah. I, I, I kind of want to springboard on what you said about media getting things wrong when it comes to disabilities. Cause I think oh. one of the challenges and is that, there's this idea that if you have a disability, you have a superpower somewhere else. And you know what? I understand what they're trying to say, and it is at its heart trying to, right. to show value. But I know that that's been a frustrating thing for you. I, I, and, and, and I might be thinking of a different circumstance, but I remember well, it as a, more, as a, it's less that they have a superpower somewhere else and more like it has to be this kind of superpower. Mm -hmm. And it usually is always in the same places. Like a common one with like the books they had us read in high school. I'm sure the teacher meant well, but oh, it was hard to get through because of this. Um, there is this one, I can't remember what it was about, but like there's this girl, she has trouble keeping eye contact and taking things a lot more literally. And she's great with younger kids, but kids in her grade, she sucks with and, um, her um, ability to um, keep social circumstances. That being said, she is great with reading and this and that. And my teacher was like, oh, yes. See, many kids with autism, even though they have trouble with social circumstances and really hate tons of loud noises and chaos around them love the order and structure of books i'm like mm -hmm. <laughs> not necessarily everyone huh <laughs> well and, and i think that has been an interesting thing because it also um you know that that perspective you you are very very opposite you've always um liked to be people be with people around your age it's not that you right you know, um, not that sometimes I think we all have that, this circumstance from time to time where people just don't get someone. Um, right. 
and and certainly you know there have been times and, and looking at things where you take things very literally i know that um one of the challenges uh in school that we had and it was just for whatever reason we have um an idea that everything has to be learned in a certain way. And one of those things that, that, that uh, is often done as an exercise is asking children to summarize something. They'll say, read this and now summarize what you read oh. into one paragraph or into two or three sentences. And uh, do you want to describe how you felt about those, uh, you know, without using profanities? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's going to be a little difficult. <laughs> those oh. assignments. It felt pointless and really dumb, especially if they like had a certain number of words you had to put in. It just meant I'm just going to spend more time describing one little aspect that the author didn't care about. (laughs) And it's interesting because I think uh, for you and, and, and especially I think this is coming to your love of film um, is there's no aspect that the author doesn't care about. You know, it, it is really kind of silly to say, um, I've got this whole chapter that I've read and I can summarize it to only five or six important points. Well, if that was true, why have the whole chapter, right? Um, right. Shouldn't it just be five or six points and we don't go on? And I think, I think that's one area where um, your autism has really shown up is um, uh, the inability to, to like, and I, I don't want to say inability because really it's, it's us that have this perspective that there are unimportant aspects in a book or in a story or in a movie. Well, um, and, and there may well, be, I but... think they're all important. It's also just like one issue I had a lot was I always had to come to the same conclusion as this teacher when it came to story analysis, which means it's not analysis. It's mm-hmm. just brainwashing. <laughs> so, yeah, you, you you have to agree with the teacher, or else you're wrong. Then that's what you're saying, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Which is an analysis that you come to your own conclusion if it's an analysis. But and I've I have a feeling I know uh, which circumstance you're talking about and which book because I, I know this there's... is not quite well. That book is one of them. <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, that book is one of them. There's a few. The, the book in question is Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. I love that book. But <laughs> and, and let's let's talk about that because I actually I, I find it interesting that if, I, I, am I am I fair in saying that um, Mary Shelby's Frankenstein is your favorite book of all time? Oh, no, we lost him again. Oh, one second. Yep. Okay, why is it showing? All right, looks like you're on. Okay. So take a pause, and you can start right at the... Okay. Yeah, he, he had asked, was uh, Frankenstein okay. your favorite book of all time? Yeah. Yeah, either, yeah. Okay, let me get back there. Yeah, make sure he's working before you answer, if you would. Okay, I'm back. <laughs> so yeah, either either Mary Shelley's Frankenstein or Journey to the West. Those are either my 
either of those are probably my two favorite books. They're they're very so, good. Maybe maybe you could you could tell us all right what is it about Mary Shelby's Frankenstein that you identify with because I think in some ways one of the hard things about when we talk about autism or dyslexia or anything that talks about and a lot of what what people now often say is a neuroatypical because it just means right. that you you neurologically function in a different way not a better way not a worse way but a different way and um and i feel like there's um a reason why you really identify with um with frankenstein not necessarily the monster but with this book and with this story so tell us a little bit about it why do you love this this book so much well there's a lot of reasons but um I guess primarily is it wasn't what I was expecting. Like, if you know Frankenstein as that unintelligent creature who accidentally gets himself in trouble but is too strong and dangerous for his own good that you've seen in the movies with, like, the bolts in his neck and all of the the big swollen head and stitches, you are way off. (laughs) (laughs) You do not know anything about Frankenstein. Or his monster. The the book, like, I, I, I just was so surprised because, like, when I was first introduced to it, I actually found a graphic novel version of the book. It was condensed and a lot smaller. It was like, but it was meant to get kids into reading and things. And I was surprised at how much more interesting it was. Like, the monster is three-dimensional. He's not some slow monster. He doesn't fire but no he's very intelligent like and not only is that more terrifying but it also makes for a way more interesting character and like it's more about how he gets treated in the world like that makes him into a monster when he's first created he like he goes through so many steps that turn him into what he is Hmm. like people see him as a monster like they see this creature that's way too big to be a human with um glowing eyes that's pale as a corpse and they're like they treat that as a monster and because of that he becomes a monster and well i've heard that kind of story before it was just interesting because it showed it from both his perspective and from the perspective of the people that he hurts afterwards like like frankenstein suffered like the actual doctor suffers immensely because of the monster's actions and well you don't really see maybe i'm the only one who sees it but this way but i don't really empathize with him that much on like well you kind of brought this on yourself i also know that there are a lot of people around him who suffer that didn't deserve that like at, at a point a kid gets killed and that kid didn't deserve it he was just a scared kid who didn't understand what was going on and I, and I find it interesting as you you talk about this because I I, I feel like it, it it's really analogous to sometimes how we we treat disabilities. It does kind of feel that way, in some ways. But like I don't know, you might be right. Um, I also just like it because it's a lot more complicated than most people give it credit for, in my opinion. Like. It's yeah. it's definitely interesting. Like, yes, the monster is definitely kind of a monster, but on the same note, there's a reason he became a monster. Well, 
And society and, made him a monster. Yeah, society made him a monster. He actually does a lot of good at certain points, but he never gets thanked. He never gets helped. He's never even just left alone after he does a good, no good deed goes unpunished. He actually gets shot after saving a girl from drowning. You know? Well, that's a, yeah, that's a whole thing to unpack. So what I'm hearing, and if we want to liken this to any form of disability, is the rejection because of being different. Exactly. And then, exactly. And then because of that rejection, we create a self-fulfilling prophecy of this person is so different. There's a stigma or a negative thing to it. And right. then that person in this case, Frankenstein, uh, right. then becomes to act out what they think people expect from them quite possibly, or at least people's perceptive continues to be negative, and therefore they always misinterpret what Frankenstein does. Well, wow. yeah. Um. Hmm. And, and, and yeah, and it's even from um, the perspective, and I think this is where, you know, we talked about, you know, in, in school, um, there, there was often, and I, and I know that <laughs> you came home very upset when, when your teacher was, was trying to tell you that really this, the message behind uh, oh, Frankenstein. Yeah, the, danger, the danger is in science. <laughs> yeah. It's about the dangers of science. I'm like, eh, the first two chapters? <laughs> and, it's, and it's really interesting. And that, that wasn't really science either. It was like pseudoscience. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's these, these differences in the way that brains work um, are, are what actually, um, you know, gives flavor to the earth, <laughs> you know, that makes things mm-hmm. like it, it, it's where we, we look at things and we say, oh, wow, uh, that's intelligent. And the difference between what we call intelligent and what we call, you know, a disability or unable or. Um, Is that one falls in line with society. And their expectations. Right. That they have. Now, I don't know if you can, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, I, maybe for the listeners and for Leonard and, and, and how we, we came about uh, this diagnosis. Um, it was when, when, when Jacob was really little as a kid, nobody um, looked at him and said, well, I, you know, this, this kid might be autistic. Of course, I have, as I've read more, I, I, I know that the signs were there from when he was just a, a baby, you know, um, but looking at him and the way that he advanced quicker than most children uh, at things like walking, at talking, happened much faster than most children do. I remember one time, um, and in fact, my grandmother was very worried that he was going to be bow-legged because he was walking at too young an age. (laughs) She believed that that would make his knees knock out and that we shouldn't let him, we shouldn't let him uh, walk yet. But um, Jacob didn't, didn't want to crawl. He, he decided he'd just go straight to walking. He did have a moment where he was like, oh, actually crawling does kind of work. But mostly he went from trying to, you know, roll around on the ground to trying to walk. And so it led him to walk really to, at, a, at a pretty young age. It was, you know, around nine or 10 months. And uh, by the time he was two years old, you know, where I, some... I used a walker, if I remember correctly. <laughs> yeah, you might, you'd use grandma, my grandfather's walker and you'd, you'd grab both sides and you'd run around with that, you know, for quite a while before you could, you could mm-hmm. free yourself from that. And then you just went from walking to running. When it came to uh, being able to talk, he spoke, you know, in really full, complete sentences by the time he was, you know, 
two. And I remember at one point walking through the library with him and he was just a little three-year-old and he's holding my hands and he's using these really articulate long sentences. And, um, you know, this woman saying, wow, you know, he's so smart. <laughs> and then what often happens with, with children who have autism um, in, this, in this form, because I really hate to say children who have autism because right. then someone says, oh, I know what children who have autism are dealing with. Because there's another kid who has autism who can't speak <laughs> when, he's, right. when he's 19. And it's nothing's wrong with him. That's just the way his brain works. You know, and, and it's, it's that whole aspect of putting disorder on the end of anything that science comes up with that is not typical. Um, but in this case, in Jacob's case, and in children that have had a similar experience, um, they get to school and all of a sudden they can't take what they know and, and narrow it down to those few points that someone says are important. You know, when, when it came to summarization, they'd say, summarize this. And I remember, you know, Jacob would say, well, and he'd almost have the whole thing memorized, you know, from that reading of it. And he would try and tell us every point that happened. We're like, no, summarize. <laughs> and, and it never would work. And unfortunately, things like that, we believe you have to pass this point to get to point, you know, point A to get to point C. And, right. and, and it was really... Um, kindergarten into first grade where what really clued us off was his self-esteem that had been really so high going into it. I remember um, even at one point um, before Jacob was in kindergarten, um, I was trying to move a couch out of our house and Jacob was really into Superman and oh. <laughs> I know I'm oh, telling you stories my. and, um, and I was hefting and moving it. And Jacob looked at me and he says, too bad. The world's not ready to know who I am or I could help you. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, just unparalleled confidence. And what really showed us, um, what chewed us off that was a problem is that confidence began to really go down into the basement after two years in, in the school system, there was so much anxiety. There was so much um, feelings of not being adequate, of not understanding. Um, because what I was seeing is that it was difficult for him to follow directions that didn't make sense. You know, if he was told you have to do this, then he believed you had to do it. Um, you know, one thing that, that I, I can say about Jacob is he doesn't lie. And if he does lie, you catch it right away. <laughs> That's true. I am a very bad liar. <laughs> and it's because it's outside of, of how his brain works. You work in truth. Um, and so we took him to a neurologist. And the neurologist spent, oh, two and a half days doing every kind of test possible. And uh, then she brought us into the room. And, and we had done so much of our own study at that point that um, and, and we were trying to get him some help in school, which was not working at all. We weren't really getting any any help, yeah. and um, and and even getting was modifications this, to assignments. At, um, I'll just say sc school one and school two. Was this at school two? Uh, this was at school one. Okay, um, school one. <laughs> we're, yeah, we're, we're trying not to um, tarnish the reputation of any school out there but um but they both were terrible your, your very first school <laughs> yes they were both terrible <laughs> well what what we learned is that the, the public education system uh, fails children with with disabilities 
wholesale across oh, the board. Absolutely. Um, well, and school too also just had incompetent counselors and teachers. That's true. Yeah. We'll talk, we can talk about that in a minute, but um, anyways, we went and saw this neurologist. They did, she did the test. And then when she brought us in, we, we were pretty certain that um, he was somewhere on the autism, autism spectrum. Um, and we were trying to get help. So she had the tissues ready because so many, so many parents cry when they get this diagnosis. But for us, it was like, that's what we've been trying to tell people. <laughs> that, that's what we've been trying to get across, that you shouldn't have this expectation. You wouldn't tell a kid in a wheelchair until you run the 50-yard dash you know, on your feet and not in a wheelchair. We're, we're not going to let you um, move on to um, arm wrestling, you know, the one right. thing they could, they could do. You wouldn't, you wouldn't tell a kid. But in, in, our, in our education system, unless you have a document, unless you have a piece of paper, unless a neurologist has signed off on it, you're, you really don't have the ability to ask for an accommodation, however reasonable it may be. So for us, it was like, oh, thank God, we're not crazy. This is a real right. thing. And, um, and, and, but, but for you, Jacob, I'm curious, when did you first hear the word autism and what did that mean to you? Because was I was very worried video. early on about even sharing the diagnosis with you. Cause I didn't want you to feel like that label defined you. It was probably, hmm, it was probably at school too. Like school two was probably when I first heard it. That being said I was kind of aware there was something about me that was different just because I was the only one who went to the counselor every Wednesday and um, uh, would just talk about things or explain how what I was having trouble with in school and things so like I, I was aware that there was something there I didn't know I didn't have a name for it I just knew that I was considered different so I probably heard about it at school too, but I was always kind of aware as far as school is concerned. I was always aware something was there. And, and it really, so just make sure I'm following. So it really sounds like most of it sort of manifested or demonstrated itself through the academic world then. Is that, is that oh, safe to absolutely. say? Oh, absolutely. It was the way the world, <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. It was definitely the way school reacted to the way I had. You know, were there circumstances outside of school that kind of brought, and I know it's hard for you in your position maybe to make that observation, but are you aware of things outside of school that maybe um, some signs or things that uh, just seemed upside down or wrong that didn't, didn't make sense that were clues as well, or was it just pretty, pretty well all restricted to school? Mostly school, to be honest, like, not until much later did I feel anything like that. But even then, it was really more of a stuff I saw in media <laughs> kind of thing. So. Well, and I think. Um, and it, even with media, it was how they reacted to school. So, again, it was more like. It, it, it all came back to school. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
Well, there are certainly some things, and and if anybody you're listening to this, you're, you're thinking, well, you know, do I have a, a child that might um, have autism? <laughs> um, some of the things very early on that we didn't know, but are are kind of a telltale signs for someone who's in a similar situation as Jacob. One is when he was born, he he was a colicky baby. He cried an awful lot, and um, and and part of it was. Uh, I, I, you know, really can't get into his brain and Jacob doesn't remember at this point much about being a baby, but, um, <laughs> you know, there, there was, a, there was, um, when, when we would introduce changes or when things were outside of his control, that was very difficult. And so actually what, when he was able to walk and move around, uh, we saw that disappear. And, um, like I remember even as we would take him to a babysitter and he'd just scream at the babysitter until we got home two hours later, or he passed out from screaming at the babysitter because it was not something he enjoyed. One of the things that um, occurs oftentimes with people with autism, and I've actually never met a person with autism that didn't have this is there's usually a very high amount of anxiety. Um, and so that was maybe one of those things. Another thing is that when he learned to walk, he liked to walk on his toes. Uh, he'd kind of walk around on his tippy toes and like to um, like like to um, move in in patterns. So, um, it, it, and which could look like pacing, or it could look like uh, running around the room in somewhat of an erratic fashion. But if you walked it, watched it long enough, you would see that there was a very distinct, clear pattern. He was going to hit the same point of the room um, every single time. Um, and, and, and oftentimes those things came out either uh, before um, or when something that caused anxiety or at the end of an anxious day as kind of a way of unwinding somewhat of a ritual. So we, we, certainly there were signs um, from a very early age. I know there were people pulled us aside and said, you know, it's because of the vaccines he got. Um, oh my <laughs> and, gosh. And, and I understand why people sometimes feel that because it's, it's around the time you get your vaccines that that oftentimes developmentally people start seeing symptoms. But if you know what you're looking for, they would have probably seen those long before uh, any vaccines had been administered. But that's one of those things that people, well, you know, oftentimes pull us aside and say, your son was ruined by vaccines. And it's no, he has a different way of thinking that um, that allows him to see things that some of the rest of us don't see, but also makes him blind to some of the things we see. Well, and it's interesting you talk about that. I still kind of do that. Not as much as I did before, but I still like to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and from what I understand with autism, it, it really is, uh, for a lot of folks anyhow, that sort of sensory overload is a bit of a challenge. Uh, not that any of us want to be overloaded with all this noise and all this kind of stuff. But I, from what I gather, that is something that, uh, is it's a bit of a common thread with autism. It, uh, just... So that can be. Um, I've found, like, I guess I sort of had something like that in that I hated loud noises. But aside from that, I don't really think I've had to deal with anything like that. Gotcha. Wouldn't readily recognize. To me, it would just be my normal, so I probably wouldn't. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think I think actually, if I can talk to that a little bit, Jacob, do you remember when you were younger, like the tags on your clothing? That's true. I hate tags. Yeah, and you you always cut the tags off. Oh yeah, I couldn't stand them. Yeah, and even today, right? If there's a tag, you remove it. That's the Uh, first thing I do. 
and that's that's this i think going to leonard what you're what you're talking about like the rest of us we will become blind we'll become blind to that we might put a shirt on and feel the tag for two seconds but then something in our brain says okay i'm going to stop telling you there's a tag here and if if there's a way of kind of sympathizing with uh, that sensory overload aspect imagine that tag sensation never goes away you know so um that's a great way to kind of focus on it steve i I appreciate that so just to kind of unpack that for maybe some folks that aren't 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 quite into neuroscience like (laughs) i am or at least i like to try to be is yeah our brains are constantly scanning and constantly aware of what's happening and so for you and i uh the fact we put on a shirt with a tag that's slightly irritating our brain eventually it within a matter of seconds says, okay, this is normal. You're just going to have to live with it. Right. Um, obviously if it's too bad, we're just going to cut out the tags as well. Whereas somebody, uh, you know, maybe in your case, Jacob, where that's a sensitivity that your brain sort of maybe doesn't let you override it and get comfortable with it. And you just have to deal with it. Um, right. So that's interesting. Yeah. And, you know, I think it goes into, you know, talk about the hearing things. We always said that Jacob had super hearing. <laughs> mm-hmm. You always have to be careful what you say around Jacob, um, even if you're in the other room. <laughs> oh, yeah. I remember, like, I would always just yell out from my bedroom. Like, even when the door was closed, I could tell what people were talking about in the living room. And I think what's interesting is not even just a matter of telling, because it's not necessarily that. Jacob actually has hearing that hears things other people don't. It's just most people will be able to tune out that conversation. Yeah. Uh, where um, there would be times I would talk and uh, to Jacob in the morning and he would tell me, oh, yeah, like you were saying last night to mom about that. I'm like, <laughs> right. <laughs> Wait, you heard all that? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah. No, no keeping secrets in our house, you know, um, because well, it's all heard. Well, what's funny? So let me uh, let me do a, a, a reveal here as we talk about some of this. I think about my own self and some of my own behaviors, and I recognize uh, some of the similarities that I have with you, Jacob. Um, oh, I have really? always, yeah, I have forever, always, even to this day, I struggle with processing information to determine what the most important information is. So, as you talked about that, you know, in your schooling. Yeah, if you write a paragraph and you want me to summarize it, I, I can summarize it some, but I can't pick out what are the three most important things that the author said or what. I really struggle unless it's bulleted or unless it's <laughs> called out, yes. you know, these are the most important points or something. Uh, so that that's one area where I see a lot of similarity. Um, and then uh, uh, I, I think that's the biggest, but just kind of, having that description about the um, the way you hear uh, is another area too because I'm uh, I've mentioned it before I love my naps and if I, mm-hmm. I don't have to have a nap every day I'm not that kind of guy but I do enjoy a good nap and one of the things that I have to do when I nap is I have to play music that is close to me so I can drown out the noise in the other parts of the house <laughs> Otherwise, my ears are straining to hear at a distance. Well, in a, in a practical setting, what, the way this t- shows with me, if there is ever a television on in the room, I don't care if there's 100 people in the room, 
I'm going to be listening to the TV. Uh, you could be right in front of me talking and I could be on the opposite side of the room where the television is, but I'm going to end up hearing the television a little bit easier than I am you. Mm-hmm. Something right. about noise at a distance attracts my ears. Now it's, it's real simple when it's, it's a machine noise. Yeah. I can hear past it and hear the voices a lot easier, admittedly, but even, even, uh, some family members that I have have televisions running all the time. And at Christmas we could have 20, 30 people in a room. And I'm still, doesn't matter that I like the topic or not, I'm still hearing the television. And it's annoying and very challenging for me. Right. Well, well that's think, interesting. Like that, that sounds, so, it's different, but similar. Like, yeah, that, that, yeah, yeah. That's crazy. Well, there you go. So you're not alone. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe I should say I'm not alone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, and I and I think and I and I'm I'm certainly not trying to diagnose you, Leonard, on Thank on this you. call. Um, but I don't you know, think you're licensed to do. So. I, I am not licensed to do that. But um, I think the statistics right now are one in sixty-eight children, or something around there. Um, it's a pretty high number. Um, right. uh, have some form of autism. Now, when we were kids, uh, they weren't diagnosing anything other than the most severe, obvious cases. And yeah. the rest of us were given different labels. <laughs> and in fact, you know, you know, now they say neurotypical and neurotypical in some cases has a very wide thing that even includes dyslexia, you know, and many other things. But th- there are people walking around amongst us, our parents, our siblings who, who have autism, um, but have never been diagnosed with it. Uh, and, and, and you know what, the diagnosis doesn't necessarily need to be there. And, and there might be people who have had the diagnosis, but haven't have decided for their own benefit, not to share that with the world because they don't want to be misunderstood or misconstrued, you know? So, you know, it's interesting because when, when I sat there listening to the neurologist and she talked about some of the things like the, the, the repetitive behavior, and I realized, well, you know what, that works for me too. When I, I'm, when I'm anxious, I like to sit and play my guitar and play the same song over and over uh, in patterns and in, and it bring, brings calm to the brain. So even um, though there may be a neurological difference, there, there are similarities that actually we could all learn from in ways of calming our own um, anxieties and things as well. So it's very yeah, interesting. I, I, I doodle drawing geometric shapes. I love to draw squares. And that's, that's how I doodle and relax. Um, so yeah, yeah, interesting for sure. And then, uh, I, I do miss some social cues as well for people that know me. So uh, <laughs> I might be, I might be somewhere on there. <laughs> if you don't tell me flat out, I'm not necessarily going to catch what you're telling me sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I always, always have appreciated people that are very direct rather than people that hint you know, uh, and we have this battle in my own household. Aren't you thirsty? No, no, I'm not. <laughs> Just because your cup is empty, you're asking me if I'm thirsty. Oh, you want me to go get you a cup of water or whatnot? <laughs> you know, my brain just doesn't function that way. And it's not that I can't observe you have an empty cup, but it's like, why aren't you just telling me what you want instead of making me try to understand what you want? So, can, can you identify with that, Jacob? Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah, this has been Dr. Phil's show today, so we've diagnosed Leonard. <laughs> oh, no, what's going on. Oh. 
Uh, but no, it's, it's fascinating, Jacob. And I, I appreciate you sharing. I know, um, it, it, you know, coming into this, I, I kind of expected because uh, it's you, it's, it might be hard for you to see differences just because you've grown up with it. Uh, but as you've described it, like I say, I, I begin to see some of these areas similar than I have, as you right. can tell, uh, where I've been a little sensitive too. And there are times for myself, just like those social cues, where it's, it's um, uh, I'll say disruptive, it's not, it's not really harmful, but it, where people just sort of get a little upset that I don't quite grasp what it is they're right. trying to say. And so I, I, I can relate in that way with you there for sure so it's interesting yeah. i think that even goes into the lie detector you know that um that's i think another place that sometimes has been difficult uh you know for for jacob and jacob you can correct me if i'm wrong but when when people lie to you <laughs> um or they say something like oh i'm trying to think of something off the top of my head but th but that that doesn't necessarily come across as a lie that you, 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 you wouldn't necessarily expect a person to lie. And nor would, if someone says, Hey, how do I look today? And in fact, if I want honesty, I can go to Jacob. How does it, how does this look? He'll tell me if it doesn't look good because, <laughs> and if he lies, I can tell right away. <laughs> he's going to be so awkward with it. And we, we sometimes take for granted how handy it is to be able to lie. You know, I think even in, in the business that Leonard and I are, are in, you know, there's there's often times where people will say, "Give me your honest feedback," and I always have to go, "Well, you know, I'm a contractor, and um, <laughs> I want to stay employed, <laughs> and I want to stay employed, and I know that if I give you my honest feedback, I'm not getting called back. So, how about I give you my dishonest feedback <laughs> instead? Oh, um, you know, because the stories I know about that. <laughs> Well, it is, it is funny. I've always, I've always considered my world very black and white. And uh, so I, I probably relate to you on that, uh, the lying scale as well there, Jacob. So interesting. <laughs> well, it's just, just some good stuff here. Appreciate you sharing. And uh, Steve, and any, you know, we're kind of nearing the end of our time here together. You want to, I, 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 I love the Frankenstein story that you talked about. In fact, it really makes me want to go back. I've never read the book i've only seen the 1920s movie or 1930s uh, you know, back in the day yeah 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 so you've you've encouraged me to uh maybe, maybe of course i'm sure it's public domain so i can easily find a free copy online to read a pdf or whatnot uh, but you've right. encouraged me to take a look at that again and there are and many yeah. versions on audible as well for those of us that don't like yeah yeah <laughs> But such a great thing to keep in mind, uh, just kind of summarizing, it, it does kind of come back to, to that in my mind, all that we've talked about, where just because we see something we perceive as different doesn't mean that we have to emphasize how abnormal different is and make such a stigma out of it. Uh, I know I, I continually, it, anybody that knows me has heard, I've talked about it several times, where part of our culture and I it's probably greater than just the United States culture but part of our culture as human beings I'll say it that way is we are uh, afraid of anything that is different than us you know we, we dislike 
what I call outliers. You know, the re remember the old bell curve that we have. <laughs> you know, the, and so if if you're at either end of that bell curve, we get really nervous and uncomfortable. And so that could right. be that could be a person with crutches. It could be a wheelchair, or it could be a celebrity like Michael Jackson, or the world's richest man now uh, just found out Elon Musk is the world's richest man. So suddenly he's going to be a target because he stands out so far from what is quote unquote normal. And so yeah. it, it makes us as human beings uncomfortable when other human beings are not quote unquote normal. And I'm convinced personally, I don't have science to back me up just yet, but I'm convinced it makes us uncomfortable because then I have to reflect on myself and my own behaviors, my own attitudes and my own actions. And because I'm, maybe I'm measuring myself a little bit against that other person. Mm -hmm. And then I have to figure out why are they different than I am and why, why can I not excel the way they do or why am I not helping them to excel more? And it right. puts responsibility on me when I do that self-assessment. So it's easier to close my eyes and say, I'm normal, they're not, and put the blame on that other individual. Right. So that, there's my non-scientific theory there. But I think... That, uh, that, that, no, I, I've definitely had experiences that uh, back that up. There you go. Well, I just, uh, from our listeners' perspective, and Steve, I'll let you have last words here, but from our listeners, I just want to encourage you, you know, to put yourself in a different lens. You know, we, we uh, uh, you know, they, they do use the term single lens perspective or single frame perspective in the, the learning world. We grow up with what we grow up. And so we have a single lens and that's, that's what's normal because that's what we've seen and how we've behaved. And in light of the events earlier uh, that we were talking about in the podcast, Let's try a little bit harder to put on a different lens and view things from a little bit of a different angle. It doesn't mean we have to embrace and admit somebody else is right or, or somebody else is wrong, but just to have a little more empathy for a different perspective. Uh, that, that would be my challenge for us. Uh, Steve, um, and that's feel free great, to say something completely contrary to like. But, uh, no, no, I think that's <laughs> a great challenge. And I think that the thing I just want to end out with is, is really just um, to to parents. This has been my, you know, my experience with autism has been as a parent of a child who has autism. Um, and that is that one of the things and one of the places if I could go back and if I could change, it would be the way that I dealt with the anxiety that Jacob had as a child. Right. And um, especially from the perspective that I had been raised that when you fear something, you face it. And then after you face it, you'll see it wasn't that bad and you'll be okay. And um, I didn't understand anything about the brain that I was trying to affect. <laughs> and uh, there were certainly plenty of times where things were very traumatic for Jacob. And um, oh. I didn't understand why they were traumatic. And I pushed him into things that only made the trauma worse. I, I'm a, thinking I know where you're going with this. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to finish my thought? <laughs> well, if this is about Miss Math. <laughs> well, not so much there. And I don't want to talk too much about her. But, right. um, but, but I just, think I know th there were plenty of other situations, too, that I 
Yes. Yeah. Times yeah. when, when, when the anxieties were really high. One time actually we were at a museum and uh, Jacob was uncomfortable climbing a staircase and I was, you know, like, come on, let's go, let's go, let's go. And I don't want to go into necessarily the details why this was very young at the time. Um, but something in um, his neurological pathway and the way he was thinking about the task was blocking him. And if I had stopped and taken the time to understand what was blocking him from being able to take a step that to me would have seemed very easily, instead of just being becoming frustrated with the meltdown, um, I may have, I would have been a better parent. <laughs> I would have, I would have helped um, him not lose his confidence as early as it was lost. And so I guess what I'm saying is, is we really have to listen to our children. Um, and we, if you feel like you've got a kid that sometimes melts down quicker than you would expect them to, probably would be a good idea to speak not to a pediatrician because they don't know a thing. Speak to um, a neurologist. Get a neurologist because we talk to many, many pediatricians. We talk to many social workers. Oh, yeah. Many of them aren't really qualified. Uh, this isn't what they spent their time learning about. And they'll give you a sheet of paper that you check off a few boxes. Unless there's a very severe form of autism, it won't detect it you need to see a neurologist um, who's experienced with it to actually get a diagnosis and to get the help and to get the understanding so that you can provide the parenting that all parents want to give. And again, Jacob, I want to thank you. Uh, this is very brave. And I know we've come really yeah. to the end of our hour, uh, oh, but no. it's very brave for you to come on. And I really do appreciate you, you spending time with us today. And you know, maybe we get you back again sometime oh, after you've had I a chance to think that. about it. <laughs> there's so much more I want to talk about um, <laughs> with this, but yeah. Thanks. All right. Well, then it looks like we've got a guest in the future. So people hold on tight. Uh, we'll, we'll have him back again at some time in the future. And, and maybe again, to our listeners, this would be a good time. If you have questions to uh, send us an email, Leonard's We'll tell you what the email address again is again. I've heard it only 42 times, but I can't remember it. Um, but uh, it'd be a good time. I'd love to hear your stories. I know if one in 68 um, children are being di diagnosed with autism, uh, you have your own stories as well. And, and we'd love to hear them. And we maybe even highlight those um, on, on a future podcast. Absolutely. Thank you, Steve. Yeah. And if you do want to reach out to us for any reason, for that matter, feel free to drop us a line. Uh, we still use email around here, so it's furloughedmailbox at gmail.com, furloughedmailbox at gmail.com, no spaces altogether there. Love to hear from you and hear from your experiences, or if you've got some questions or whatnot, feel free to reach out. Uh, we're not uh, certified <laughs> physicians or anything like that, but certainly we can give you our opinions as we always do. And with that, we'll go ahead and wrap up our session today. So just appreciate you uh, folks that have been listening to us. We're now in our second year, second podcast in our second year. And we will continue to have our conversations about defining moments worth talking about and appreciate your support along the way. But lastly, do want to remind you to check out our sponsor's website if you've not already done so. We are sponsored each week by UpwardsUnlimited.com. That's Upwards, W-O-R-D-S, unlimited.com. And they help businesses, teams, and individuals improve their conversations, connections, collaboration, and community. And with that, we'll say goodbye until next week. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye.